today, uh, as we, we think about uh, various things, we are going to wrap up our series titled, Now What? During this series, uh, we've been challenged to look at what do we do in light of the resurrection of Jesus. That we don't want the resurrection to be something that we just celebrate on Easter, but it's something that, that goes with us and is evident each and every day of our life. Um, we, we've been working on the premise that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And what we desire is for this community of believers to not just believe that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead, but to actually allow that to change us and to impact our life, to impact what we do and where we go and what we say and who we are and whose we are. We recognize that Jesus is with us on this journey, and because of that, we strive to help people discover and experience his life-changing love. Right? That's what we are called to do. Since Easter, going through this Now What series, we've looked at the Now What for the disciples, the Now What for Jonah, the Now What and what it means to seek first the kingdom of God for Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Uh, two weeks ago, we uh, turned our attention to the letter that Peter wrote uh, to the churches that were scattered throughout the region. We explored how Christ was not only the cornerstone on which everything is built, he's also the capstone which holds everything together. And on him we are to build our faith and we are to allow him to hold our faith together, especially in difficult times. Last week, Ian shared from Acts chapter 17 about Paul's interaction with the people in Athens and how Jesus is the one that they are to worship and to serve and to know. And how all of our lives, what we do, point toward Jesus. And so today, as we wrap up this series, uh, I want to end at the beginning, okay? Uh, I want us to end our series at the beginning of something new, which really wasn't a beginning as much as a continuation of what God was doing and he continued to do. Uh, as we are gathered together in this very short period of time here on Memorial Day weekend, I want to suggest to you what makes something memorable. What is it that makes something memorable. And what I want to suggest to you is this one word, time. I want to suggest that time is what makes something memorable. What do I mean? Well, what I mean by that is this. If we are to look back through our life or our circumstances and our experiences, it's when we look back, that's when we determine what is truly memorable. There are things that happen, and when they happen, we say, I will never forget that. Have you ever said that? Right? What was it again that we said we would never forget, right? Don't we do that? Now, there are some things that we obviously remember, but there are things that we oftentimes forget. Uh, often, if we, even if we don't forget them, we carry those with us throughout the, the period of our life. But when we're gone and those experiences are gone, oftentimes those memories are gone as well. Often what survives are those collective memories that we all have, those grand events that take place on a, on a bigger national scale, if you will. Those are the ones that endure. Such things as, as D-Day or B-Day or the Kennedy assassination or the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination, landing on the moon, shuttle explosion. A lot of those things that we remember are all negative oftentimes, aren't they? Those big events that cause national Tragedies. Those are the collective memories. Those are the things that seem to endure. Those are what transcend even beyond those who actually experience them. And as I was reflecting upon that over this past week, I was reminded, it, it just came to mind that, that what we do as a people, what we do as a community, as a church, as a body of believers, that which we do is that which will be remembered. 
What we do today has the potential to impact the memories of the future. We often share with uh, various people, especially our family, those stories and things that are important to us, those things that endure, those memories that we want generations to carry on and pass on, right? So what do we do with that which is important? And it's kind of with all those thoughts in mind that I want to read from Acts chapter 1. And I want to begin in verse 6. It says this, so when they met together, they asked him, now who are the they? The they are the disciples, okay, so set the stage just a little bit. The disciples are together, and they're asking him, who is Jesus, all right? So the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he, being Jesus, said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. What we find here in this text is that the disciples want to know what? Little audience participation. What do they want to know? When? Is it time? Right? Hey Jesus, is it time? Now it's interesting to know that that's what they wanted to know. Because they've been with Jesus a lot, right? They want to know, hey, hey Jesus, when is this kingdom going to happen? How is it going to happen? What can we expect to happen? Is it time to restore the kingdom? This was important to them. After all, if we look at things through the lens of the disciples and everything that they had experienced up to this point, they've been called by Jesus to leave everything they had and follow him. And they did. For around three years, they participated with Jesus in his ministry. During that time, they saw him heal the lame and give sight to the blind and raise people from the dead, drive out evil spirits, rebuke their religious leaders, interact with the sinners and the tax collectors, extending grace and love and mercy. They heard him talk about all sorts of things. They heard him talk about the kingdom, about reconciliation and restoration, and they saw him as a savior and as the Messiah, and then they saw him get arrested and tried and beaten and crucified. Jesus was dead and all hope was lost. But then, because we're on the other side of the story, right? But then they experienced the resurrection. And then they had new hope and new joy and new possibilities. There was this new adventure and this new kingdom and new excitement. And the kingdom is still coming. And they arrive in Jerusalem. They're spending time with Jesus. And they're like, all right, Jesus, is it time? Doesn't that make sense? That's what they would want to know. Jesus, is it time? Yeah, really good reasons to ask this question. If we back up just a couple of verses in verse 3, we see that Jesus has been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Luke, who wrote the letter of Acts, is a continuation of Jesus' story and the story of the church. And he says in verse 3, after his suffering, he, being Jesus, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. What are they asking about? Hey, is it time for the kingdom? In verse 4, Jesus says to them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If you look back to the Old Testament, uh, which the disciples would have been very familiar with, the, the law and, and the Old Testament writings, uh, specifically in Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, and Zechariah 12, 
there's this strong connection between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God coming. The disciples, in their mind, probably made this connection when Jesus is saying, all right, stay here and the Spirit will come upon you. And so they ask the question, is it time? They're, you know, it's all gearing up for this to happen. And one of the things I find interesting is the way Jesus responds to his disciples. He doesn't just say, yep, let's go get them, boys, right? He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And this isn't the first time that Jesus had told his disciples, hey, don't get hung up on the time. Don't, don't get hung up on the order of which things happen. Back in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple and, and the end times, he told his disciples, hey, only the Father knows when these things are going to happen. Here in our text, this phrase, times and dates, two different uh, Greek words. One refers to the duration of time, and the second refers to both the length of time and the kind of times, whether they be good times or hard times. And Jesus is telling his disciples, and I would suggest that he's still telling us here today, that we cannot know the time in general or specific related to his return or when the kingdom will come to fruition. Those are the things only the Father knows. It's in his timetable and his alone. But even though the disciples may not know the exact time and day the kingdom will come, that doesn't mean there's not a plan. Jesus had an objective. Look at verse 8. What did he tell them? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus was telling them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and the Holy Spirit would empower them to be witnesses, to be martyrs, if you will, for him, starting in Jerusalem. Then the gospel would spread out to the surrounding area of Judea and then north to Samaria, and then the message would spread all over the world. And it's very interesting that Jesus laid it out this way. It could have been very easily argued that what Jesus was proposing was not a very good plan. Okay? And I want to suggest that because of this. Where did he tell him to start? And the answer is Jerusalem, right? Start in Jerusalem. Where was Jesus when he was crucified? Not a trick question. Jerusalem, right? So just 40 days prior, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and what happened? Well, he was betrayed, he was put on trial, the angry mobs wanted him dead, and he was crucified, right? And Jesus said, hey, let's start there. Wait, what? Let's start in Jerusalem where the people don't like you very much. Or then let's go to the surrounding area of Judea. We, we know from the text that, that Judea is, is the area in which the people didn't receive Jesus. They rejected Jesus' ministry. And then let's go to Samaria, the region that was regarded uh, in that area as uh, the land of the half-breeds. The, the Jews avoided Samaria whenever possible. We know from history that when they were traveling from north to south or south to north, Samaria was in the middle of, between Judea and, and uh, Galilee. Sorry, just lost my geography there for a minute. And instead of going straight through Samaria, they would go all the way around Samaria because they just didn't want to interact with the Samaritan people. So let's go to Samaria where none of the Jews like to go. And then the ends of the earth. And who lives at the ends of the earth? The Gentiles, right? 
the non-Jews, those people who are outside of God's love and grace and not his chosen people. Let's go there. Not a very good plan. And yet that's what Jesus instructed them to do. And here's what's interesting about this. If you read through the entire book of Acts, you see that it happens. You see that Jesus' plan actually comes to fruition. Acts chapters 1 through 7 describe the gospel being taught and shared in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 read accounts of the gospel spreading to Judea and Samaria. And then when you look at the missionary journeys of Paul through chapters 13 through 28, we read the accounts of the gospel being spread and taken to the very ends of the earth. So much so that it leads Paul to say in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 that the gospel had been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. The gospel message had been spread to the ends of the earth within the first century, the first generation of Christians. Or at least it had to the extent of the known world, right? Obviously, not every person had heard since not every person has heard now, but the gospel was going out all over the world and it was going to the ends of the earth. And I have to tell you, if you stop and look at this through a different lens and you look at it through the lens of this has already happened, at least for me, it challenged my previous thoughts and interpretations and views of this text. Not only have I heard this text presented in, in a sermon or a message as a personal challenge for us today, I probably even said the same thing myself. It's often thought that these words here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a personal directive that we are to follow. Our Jerusalem is our hometown and the people with which we interact with and we have close relationship with. Our Judea consists of the people who are a little farther away from us, say Trenton or Philly or even you know, the far reaches of Gringos and Flemington, right? And then there's Samaria. Well, what's Samaria? Well, Samaria are those people who are near us, but, but they're kind of in our way. Those are the people that we kind of go around. We do our best to avoid interacting with them. We just try to not hang out with those people, whoever those people are. And then the ends of the earth, well, to us, the ends of the earth, those are the faraway places. Those are the foreign mission fields, right? Like Africa or India or Haiti or something like that. But here's the deal. When we do that, are we trivializing what God has already done? When we look at it that way, aren't we putting ourselves at the center of the world, at the center of the words Jesus said? Aren't we making it all about us? Do we forget that more than likely the Ethiopian eunuch took the gospel message to Africa after his encounter in Acts chapter 8? Or that Thomas, according to Christian history, took the gospel of Jesus to India? Do we make missions something far off and something that we have to go to overseas or go to a third world country to do? And if we do, what does that say about the efforts of believers in other parts of the world who have been laboring for a long time with the message of Christ, proclaiming it to people to help people discover the life-changing love of Christ? Here we are today gathered on the outskirts of Pennington, New Jersey. And I don't know if you've looked around, but this is not Jerusalem. Right? It's not. New Jersey was not on the minds of the disciples when Jesus told them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In a way, Pennington is the ends of the earth. Right? Especially when compared to Jerusalem, especially at the time of Jesus. 
when, when I took uh, a mission trip to Taiwan and another one to Egypt, both of those trips took me a long way away from where I lived at the time. And for me, it felt a little bit like the ends of the earth, right? It was a long way away, but, but it only felt that way for me. For the people who were born and raised there, including the churches that we served with while we were there, it's their home. Taiwan is the ends of the earth the same way Pentecost is the ends of the earth, but only in relationship to Jerusalem, not in relationship to me. What's my point? Well, at least the conviction for me was this. When we as believers here in Pennington, in this area, I think we should see our mission the, the same way the believers in Egypt and Taiwan and Haiti and Honduras and everywhere else, I think we should see it the same way that they see it. We are the ends of the earth. The gospel has come to us and we have a responsibility to live that out, to live out what that means wherever we are, in this culture, in this time, and wherever God may send us. See, I do believe that what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 does apply to us. I think we are all to be his witnesses. But it doesn't require us to have to go somewhere to make that happen. We don't have to go to Africa. We don't have to go to India where Christianity has existed for almost 2,000 years. Just because the United States claims to be a Christian nation doesn't mean that everyone here is a believer. It doesn't mean that we are Jerusalem and that only those people over there are the ones that need the help. That we haven't figured out. That we have the inroad to God and no one else has it not what it means at all. I would suggest that when we put ourselves at the center of the message, it harms our involvement in God's mission because it removes from our everyday lives the, the opportunities and even the responsibility of what we've been called to do. Because if it's only to take it over there, then it's just those people who have time, resources, and ability to go over there, and we don't have to do it ourselves. But the reality is we have all been called to share. All been, as believers, given the Holy Spirit to live in our life and enable us to represent Him wherever we go, whether that be in Pennington or Hopewell or Ewing or Orangeville or Trent or Cranberry or Hamilton, West Winter, wherever it is. Even if it does happen to be Haiti or Honduras or Egypt or Lebanon, wherever we go. God's mission for us is to tell people about Him and to express His love, His love of His Son. And that happens all over the world. I'm not the center of it. It's not revolving around me because this is not Jerusalem. The gospel message has come to us a long time ago from a country far, far away, right? And we now have it. And it's time for me, for you, for us, to pass that on to the people that we're around, where we live, where we visit, everywhere we go, for as long as we live. We are a part of the plan that Christ had to continually take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, which, for us, just happens to be our backyard, right? Because we are the ends of the earth. And we stand on the shoulders of those in the faith who came before us, and other people will have opportunities to stand on our shoulders in the future. Again, Jesus said in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The last command Jesus gave his disciples and gave us was to be his witnesses. 
As he stands with his feet on the steps of the heavenly throne and he sends his followers out into the world with a purpose to bear testimony, to, to tell what they personally have experienced about the Son of God, the Son of Man, and to identify Jesus as the one who gives life. There's this uh, interesting story that I heard from James Hastings of Gustave Doré. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Okay? Anybody recognize him? No, right? You wouldn't really recognize him, but I would guess you would recognize his work. He's a French book illustrator known for his woodcut illustrations of books such as Dante's Inferno, Don Quixote, and the Bible. The story is told that once when he was crossing the Italian frontier, he had mislaid his identification papers, and he was called upon to prove his identity. He didn't have his papers, so what he did was he took a sheet of common paper and a piece of charcoal, and he began tracing the homely, manly features of Victor Emmanuel, who was the first king that united Italy. The guards knew that only one man could draw like that. They were able to identify him because of the way he was able to display the king. I want to say that again. They were able to identify him because of the way he was able to display the king. And I would suggest that the challenge for us is that we are to, to trace on the rough surface of our common lives the image of the king that we represent Jesus and that we could be identified because of Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What sets a believer apart is their love. And the challenge we have is born out of the opportunity that we've been given. Because we are his children, because of his great love for us, we have the opportunity then to love other people, to allow the image of the king to radiate through our lives, to be represented by him. And sometimes that image is clear, and it's bright, and it's distinct, and sometimes in our life, it's hard to be distinguished, but it's always there. And it's there because Jesus invites us to see ourselves through him, so that when others look at us, they see him and not our imperfections. Jesus invites us to be in him, and that's one of the things we do in communion as we identify with him. We see ourselves in Christ. We see that through his great love for us that he gave of his love. He gave us freedom. He gave of himself. He used common elements. He took bread and said, hey, this is my body given for you. He took wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take, eat, take, drink. And as we do, we remember and we reflect on him, and we allow our lives to reflect him as well. In just a moment, the ushers are going to pass the trays. We're going to be led in a song that we can continue to worship as we participate, as we take of the bread and take of the juice, and we allow his image to be our image, and we worship him together. We invite you to participate. We invite you to reflect the image of Christ in your life, and to do that communion and worship together. Let's, let's pray together. We'll receive communion as we pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that 
you've called us to represent you. You haven't just left us to do that on our own, but you've given us yourself. You've given us the spirit to guide us, to lead us. Father, help us as we focus on you and remember your sacrifice to realize that it's, it's not about us, it's all about you. We thank you, Father. We love you, Jesus. So much.